The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Markets ended up mostly on the positive side this week as Powell's press conference hinting lower interest rates set off an explosive rally in the markets on Wednesday. Stocks were somewhat mixed, but mostly ended up positive on Friday after an employment report that showed a strong labor market. But underneath that report, hotter-than-expected wage growth at an annualized rate of 5.8%, which is highly inflationary. It's widely expected the Fed will raise interest rates next week by 50 basis points, and we could see a Fed funds rate rise to between 5 and 5.5 next year, or even higher, if inflation doesn't recede raising the risk the Fed could blow up the economy, leading to another financial crisis. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck, our technician this week is Ron William. He's saying, get ready for FANG 2.0. And I don't mean Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google. FANG 2.0 stands for Fuel, Agriculture, Nuclear, and Gold. Next is Ryan Sweet, who joins us from Oxford Economics. He sees a recession next year as the Fed does what it always does, which is tighten too aggressively and buy too much. Then Chris Paplava and Chris Sheridan will be here with another edition of Smart Macro. But first, let's find out what moved the markets this week with Ryan Paplava. Well, the bear market rally continued this week as investors had some great news from Fed Chair Powell in a speech he made regarding the economic outlook, inflation, and the labor market, in addition to a steady jobs report on Friday. Bulls were also aided by some key technical levels that were overcome this week, such as the 200-day moving average for the S&P 500, currently at 4046, and does beg to question, is this rally a bear market rally or the beginning of something bullish? The S&P 500 was able to close the week at 4071, up 1.13%. The Nasdaq was up 2.09%, and the Dow Industrial Average gained just under a quarter of 1% for the week. So let's dive into the Powell speech Wednesday, as it was one of the primary drivers to this week's rally. Wednesday, Fed Chair Jay Powell was focused on the economic outlook, inflation, and labor market. The part of the speech that triggered investors was the following sentence, which we have on a clip here. Ongoing rate increases will be appropriate in order to attain a policy stance that is sufficiently restrictive to move inflation down to 2% over time. Monetary policy affects the economy and inflation with uncertain lags, and the full effects of our rapid tightening so far are yet to be felt. Thus, it makes sense to moderate the pace of our rate increases as we approach the level of restraint that will be sufficient to bring inflation down. The time for moderating the pace of rate increases may come as soon as the December meeting. Given our progress in tightening policy, the timing of that moderation is far less significant than the questions of how much further we will need to raise rates to control inflation and the length of time it will be necessary to hold policy at a restrictive level. It is likely that restoring price stability will require holding policy at a restrictive level for some time. While Powell said the slowdown in pace is a lot less important than how much longer the Fed plans to raise rates, investors took this as a sign that the worst case scenario of a 75 basis point hike come this month is now off the table. In the morning, Fed futures were predicting a 66% likelihood of a 50 basis point hike versus 75, and that went up to 75% chance soon after Powell's speech. The futures closed out the week 
following all of the economic data at 77% chance of a 50 basis point hike come December 14th. The initial response was quite dramatic in the market. The Nasdaq closed up 4.4% Wednesday, whopping increase as a result of rates falling. In fact, rates continue to fall throughout the rest of the week with a 10-year Treasury at three and a quarter Tuesday before Powell's speech Wednesday and closing on Friday at 3.51%. The two-year Treasury yield, which was at 4.47% on Tuesday, settled Friday at 4.29%, still inverted and by a wider margin than at the beginning of the week. That's a pretty decent drop this week in yields, which also assisted with a drop in the U.S. dollar from 106.77 on Tuesday and closed at 104.50, breaking below its 200-day moving average after breaking above it back a year ago in June of 2021. That's partly from Powell's speech and trading momentum, but yields and the dollar were also affected by economics. So let's dive into those readings now. One of the major announcements this week that put a lid on the rally in stocks stemming from Powell's speech was the ISM manufacturing print on Thursday, which hit 49, depicting the first contraction in the indicator since May of 2020. Some of the details don't paint a rosy picture, with new orders and employment both contracting. While production is growing, it has slowed recently. The other major economic release this week that influenced trading was the jobs report Friday. Non-farm payrolls grew at 263,000, was stronger than expected. Hourly earnings growth of 0.6% was higher than expected, and the unemployment rate held steady at 3.7%. Generally, the positive numbers shed doubt the Fed may be able to slow its rate hike plans past December and that the likely course of action is higher for longer. As a result of these two major influences, Treasury yields and the dollar, as I mentioned, continued lower to close at the end of the week. There were other important economic announcements this week that didn't have as large of an influence, one of which Chris Poplav and I discussed in detail was the Challenger job cuts released on Thursday. It showed that companies cut the most jobs since January of 2021, with 76,835 cuts in November, greatly increased from October's 33,835 cuts. While it's just a blip compared to historically, uh, when we look at, let's say, the 2020 pandemic, it's a breakaway in trend if things persist and continue to grow there. So we're going to be watching that closely in the months to come. Looking at the personal income and spending report, another uh, release this week, it showed some encouragement with a rise in the income of 0.7% with spending up 0.8%. There was also improvement in the core PCE price index, which is what the Fed closely watches, which only grew 0.2%. On the flip side, Personal spending savings rate is now quite low at 2.3%, one of the lowest on records likely due to goods and services inflation. That just about covers this week with Powell's speech update and ahead of the Fed's policy statement later this month on the 14th, on top of the important economic reports this week. Up next, this week's guest technician, Ron William. You have to take into consideration that the world is deglobalizing. The world is breaking apart again into two camps, the autocratic countries and the democratic countries. And the Middle East as, the, as a major energy producer and OPEC plus is in the autocratic camp. 
And therefore, I think those items that the autocratic camp produces, and is a major producer, you have to be careful because those commodities could remain very scarce and get scarcer. And therefore, the prices of those items could be bid up uh, much more dramatically due to an intensifying geopolitical conflict that I see. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Are you getting closer to retirement? Do you worry about what retirement will look like? Financial Sense Wealth Management can help put your mind at ease. Our advisors can help customize an individual retirement plan that fits your needs and helps you get on the right track to achieving your retirement goals. We'll show you how to get the most out of your Social Security benefits, make the right decisions on Medicare, reduce taxes, and increase your return on investments so you can relax and enjoy your retirement years. Don't leave your retirement up to chance. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management today at 888-486-3939 or email us at grow at financial. FinancialSense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Ron Williams is the founder and market strategist at RW Advisory. And Ron, when we last spoke with you almost a year ago to today, in December of 2021, the market was hitting a peak. And your big call at the time is that we were likely at a major turning point in the cycle and you warned of downside risks for 2022, especially for the tech sector. And you were saying that one of your highest conviction calls was that we would see the FANG stocks defanged. So given that your market call was spot on, especially with the major hit to the tech stocks this year, where does your outlook stand today? We're in the midst of a bear market rally. They can be big in big bear markets of the order of magnitude of about 20 or so percent. Uh, We just saw that summer past, uh, and it looks like we're seeing it again, depending on which market you're looking at. So the Dow's already done that. Uh, Mean of writing above the 200-day. Now we have the S&P 500 touching at that same level. What's interesting, of course, is we have positive seasonality that is likely to offer more support into year-end. Um, and uh, the first quarter of, of, of the year, it's a combination of different uh, seasonality patterns. So often it's the sparked by the October fall crash pattern, which is definitely what we had uh, this year, uh, given that it was such a tough year, it tends to lead to a kind of a sharper uh, oversold mean reversion pattern, which is what we saw since. Then uh, a combination of uh, year-end seasonality combined with uh, the midterm elections. Quick disclaimer is uh, midterms, part of the four-year presidential cycle pattern is positive, the the best part of the pattern, but depending on the cycle that we're in. uh, So that will likely support markets uh, going into the new year, but it is not a one-size-fits-all. And then from second half of next year onwards, the strategic uh, headwinds um, remain bearish. And that's part of the uh, so-called Minsky pattern that we spoke about before, developed by the uh, the economist Hyman Minsky, talking about uh, irrational exuberance in the market driven by speculation uh, and low rates. Um, that's basically where we are. But if you look at it from a technical perspective, it's a, a multi-year expanding triangle pattern with an excess to the upside that has since been reversed. 
So again, as you said, you know, we're in the midst of a seasonal bear market rally. As you look at it, the midterm elections are also historically favorable for the stock market. Um, then again, we are looking at the high probability of a recession for 2023, according to a number of recessionary models. And I do want to mention that we will have a chart pack where this interview is posted on Financial Sense, so all of you can follow along with some of the assets and stocks that we're going to discuss today. So for 2023, after this bear market rally commences, uh, would you say that the risks are to the downside? Are you looking for maybe a period of consolidation or volatility? So the exact pattern is difficult to predict, uh, and, and certainly I, I tend to focus more on probabilities and uh, scenario planning. And so I, I think the one thing that we can be more clear on is elevated volatility. And so whether the market's going to be a typical bear in terms of sideways rolling volatility or uh, a landslide down, I think that's that's something that we just need to uh, position for either way um, and uh, and play it stage by stage. Uh, in terms of which markets are likely going to be best for positioning, I mean, just right now, we, we've had an interim top in the dollar, which I think is going to be a pivotal in terms of the general rotation going into the new year. In, in terms of the equity mix, just to, just to circle back, uh, defensive sectors so in, in terms of staples, healthcare, utilities. Interesting that some of the best sectors this year, like energy, are becoming overbought uh, in, in momentum terms, but also under price resistance into that 100 level at the psychological mark, uh, if you're looking at X, uh, actually. And certainly inflation will likely still be the theme. So perhaps a, a positive play for, for uh, commodities and gold, per se, in terms of absolute performance and uh, relative de-risking Okay. Yeah. So if we look at the dollar, I'm looking at the US dollar currency index DXY. It looks like we put in a pretty decisive top in October and we have seen a pretty decent correction off of those highs. From your technical work, do you think that the outlook is for further weakness in the dollar from here? Yes, absolutely. We just put out a piece uh, following up to an earlier uh, correct call uh, for a top uh, on the dollar that was posted in the summer and then um, updated uh, just past. Uh, that was themed at the US dollar king of rock and roll, uh, pun intended in terms of it rocking up 20% at a historical pain threshold. If you go back uh, in history, defying gravity and then sporting the equivalent of portfolio blue suede shoes in terms of uh, the asset class mix and, and what, uh, what held and what didn't. Um, but the role part is most important um, because of any strong trend uh, often gives, gives way to a great uh, fall uh, once it once it does roll. Um, and so technically, we had momentum exhaustion uh, marked by the mark exhaustion signals, uh, divergences on a multi-month basis, looking at the uh, traditional oscillators. Um, and what is always interesting is when you see contrarian setup in terms of positioning, um, and certainly that the, there was a lot of overcrowded, large, uh, long speculator positions on the dollar. All of that was then pressured by our cycle model, uh, specifically for the dollar market, suggesting uh, that we would underperform year to year end. And that is now suggesting that we extend into Q1. So it's not a straight line down. Of course, linear moves are often not the case. Uh, the fractal behavioral pattern would likely be down for now um, and then uh, have a relief rally into Q1 just around the time uh, where our global sentiment indicators suggest that we will continue in that 
downside trajectory. So that's the suggestion for the dollar. And what's interesting, of course, the dollar index is made up of relative currencies. So that does mean that we're seeing a little bit of respite in the, in the highest weighters of euro and the yen. And uh, one of our big calls is that the Swiss franc will likely uh, serve as an interesting safe haven along with the Japanese yen later on in the year. Outside of the currency space, any other asset classes or implications that you think stem from a weaker dollar from here on out? You did mention commodities and gold earlier. Would those be the two primary ways to play this? In terms of commodities, I do I think that uh, gold will, will naturally have a positive respite given um, the, the the dollar tailwind and, and the, the dollar denominator. But what's concerning um, when you look at the gold charts at the moment is it's not just gold and dollar, it's gold across a basket of other currencies. It's still range bound and, and not decisively positive. So I'm still waiting uh, to see new high breakout uh, patterns on gold. I think if you're looking at some of the uh, stock gold stock positioning, that, that there could be some interesting plays there, but still uh, would need to wait and see. So commodities would be a positive play in general uh, with a, a dollar unwind uh, and elevated volatility environment. But uh, I think we need to be selective and, and uh, make sure that we uh, approach with the best risk reward setups. Yeah, when it comes to the commodity sector more broadly, and we could refer to energy, agricultural commodities, and metals as all part of that, uh, Felix Zulaf, who we just recently spoke with on our podcast, his view was that we are likely to see one more down leg in this bear market cycle into the first quarter of next year. And then he's expecting to see leadership reemerge for the commodity space, given the just uh, widespread scarcity of resources that we see. Obviously, there's been like 10 years of underinvestment into the fossil fuel space. We just don't have enough production capacity, refining capacity. So that's going to be, he believes, and uh, in addition to many others, that that's going to be a long-term tailwind for energy and other commodities as well, which largely come out of autocratic nations uh, where we have geopolitical uncertainty and conflict, uh, that that is going to also be a tailwind for further scarcity and higher prices. From a longer term viewpoint, what is your outlook on commodities? Because I think as you probably know, there was a lot of talk about a commodity super cycle that we saw, you know, off of the 2020 lows. Energy was a major outperformer. That's been a good place to be. Do you see that continuing on a longer term basis for investors? Longer term, if we go out multiple years, yes. Um, and, and I mean, specifically, energy has done so well this year that it will likely um, have a welcome respite, uh, particularly if you're looking at um, the XLE ETF. It's, it's already overbought and unwinding from those extreme momentum conditions around the psychological 100 mark, which ties in with uh, the all-time high, I think, set in 2014. So technically, uh, it's time for a, a brief break. But if we're looking long-term strategic, um, it's it's uh, worth looking into the new FANG 2.0, I believe developed by Bank of America, uh, where uh, they're looking at more of the inflationary proxies, which tend to do well also with uh, elevated volatility and just general geopolitical risk. Um, so F is, is exactly what we're talking about, fuel, uh, which can include energy as in traditional energy, but also renewable. Uh, a agriculture uh which of course has done uh, we've had we, we've had uh, 
big swings in uh, in agriculture for the food shortage uh, reason um, that we're aware of and you just mentioned. Um, and one that hasn't been mentioned yet, but but I believe will be very important, of course, is aerospace. We just had the launch back to the moon, uh, but this time not to just step on the moon, but stay on the moon um, and develop all, all kinds of new technologies, which I think should be transformational. Uh, it's aerospace and defense. And of course, defense uh, uh, is, is a... Uh, interesting proxy for all the geopolitical developments that continue. Um, N, nuclear, and G, uh, gold. So it's certainly a big mix of FANG 2.0 is commodity and inflation positioned, but you have some interesting ideas there in terms of uh, what could be long-term plays ahead. Mm-hmm. And you said, was that Bank of America? What was the institution that you said that is calling for this new FANG 2.0? Yeah, so it's it's been it's an index that has now been set up. I think originally by Bamel, but it, it's a new index to to, to consider for long term strategic plays, particularly in a, a strong inflation, uh, elevated volatility, and you know uncertain geopolitical environment. And if you look into it, I mean, fuel. Think of uh, you know some some of the. ETF plays fuel uh, XLE, and you can look at some of the renewable energies, agriculture XA. R or ITA, aerospace and defense, um, FEGI. I'm just reading out some of the popular proxies. Nuclear, of course, there are many, uh, but URA is one, and gold, uh, GLD or XME, um, or just the underlying uh, gold market itself. Uh, so certainly, uh, onto your question about gold, I, I, I think it's still an important part of the, the portfolio de-risk choice. So at least in terms of you know risk management, it's, it's, it's something to have, uh, and perhaps into next year, we'll likely have a little bit of upside performance uh, given the dollar uh, interim top and ongoing inflationary trend. It is interesting when you think about the confluence of a dollar top and then also the massive systemic shock of confidence to uh, the crypto space. You know, a lot of funds were flowing into the crypto space for many years there as an anti-dollar, anti-fiat play a store of value for many that that considered that of course we've seen now since bitcoin had hit you know around sixty thousand dollars and then corrected off those highs to where it is today a lot of people are rethinking perhaps the safety of crypto given that level of volatility and the hit that we've seen i think it brings up the question as to whether some of that capital that may have been diverted into the crypto space previously now looking at crypto saying i'm not sure about that is going to move back into gold. I do know central banks have been picking up on their gold purchases as well. So it will be interesting to see how gold and silver as well perform, you know, looking out into 2023 and the years ahead. Yes, indeed. And and, and certainly it, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's the, the hard tangible asset that, that people know and trust. And I, I think trust is the big sentiment that is being experienced right now with, with I mean, across the board. Um, and so certainly people will likely continue uh, to trade and invest in, in what they know and trust. Also, uh, as part of that currency debasement risk, uh, there, there's less places to hide. Um, so um, one of the last places I think will be gold um, in, in terms of commodities uh, in, current, in, in the currency world, um, Swiss franc and maybe the Japanese yen. Swiss franc more specifically from a technical and macro low policy rates, uh, low inflation, and reduced energy exposure in terms of what's happening uh, in the region. And uh, Japanese yen, it's just had such a mad run um, or underperformance across the board um, that that will likely 
uh, lead to stabilization in the new year and better safe haven uh, properties going forward. And then outside of, of commodity mix and currencies, of course, defensive plays in general, um, including quality bonds and some of those defensive sector plays. Well, Ron, to summarize some of what we discussed today, as you said, you believe that we're looking at a seasonal bear market rally. Midterm elections are also historically favorable for the stock market when it comes to the outlook for 2023. As you said, you know, you're looking at either higher volatility or we could be looking at some downside risk, but it doesn't sound like you're thinking that we're just going to see a a resumption of uh, the prior bull market, that this is a seasonal bear market rally. You're looking at, you know, topping formation here in the dollar. And as you said, you know, uh, investors want to be looking at FANG 2.0, fuel, traditional and renewable energy, agriculture, also aerospace, defense in that A, and for nuclear and gold. So this would be a long-term strategic way of navigating the markets ahead. Anything that you'd like to add or change on what I said as we close? It's a great roundup. Uh, best wishes to, to everyone in, in terms of capitalizing on the, on the, the portfolio performance into year end um, and the lessons learned. And I look forward to catching up again once we open that new year uh, to look at the global cross-asset market mix. What will be the best way for our listeners to gain access to your research? Yes. So all uh, research um, and advisory uh, services can be accessed on rwadvisory.com. And many of my comments are available on social media, uh, LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, Feel free to uh, contact and I'm I'm happy to follow up. Um, And as a special promo for everyone listening to this podcast, if you just type in financial sense, then we can develop a uh, trial for your review. Well, Ron, it was a pleasure speaking with you on Financial Sense News Hour once again, and we definitely look forward to speaking with you in the future. Thanks a lot. Crises cause the governments to spend money. And so the federal spending level goes way up from baseline. World War I and Spanish flu caused it to go way up. Then in 1919, a Republican Congress comes in with a Democratic president, Woodrow Wilson, and they start fighting about how do you cut taxes? How do you cut spending? After World War II in 1946, a Republican Congress gets elected and they come in and they start fighting with the Democratic president, Harry Truman. How do we cut taxes? How do we cut spending? President Obama, you know, had the crisis spending of the global financial crisis and and stimulus and the tarp and all. Um, And that, again, you have an austerity hangover every time after the crisis spending happens. Republicans took Congress in 2010 under the Democratic president then, and they were fighting. They had led to sequestration, led to a shutdown. So if we believe that the past performance is any predictor of future activities, we're about to have fights over spending, less so maybe on taxes, because President Trump's tax cuts are still in place. They don't really start expiring in areas until 2025. Uh, But they're going to fight about how do we bring the federal government spending down? The debt's up a third since the pandemic started. Federal spending in 22 was 42% higher than it was in 2019. Fiscal fights always follow crisis spending. There is always an austerity hangover. Hard to imagine why there won't be this time. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, Go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Are you tired of earning a minimal interest rate on your investments? Are you looking for a higher rate of return on your money? Financial Sense Wealth Management has put together a portfolio of high-dividend-paying blue chips, high-quality interest-paying bonds, and preferred stocks. Our income account portfolio is specifically designed to help meet the needs of retirees, pension funds, and foundations looking to increase income and reduce taxes. To learn more, 
Contact us at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, here we are entering. It's hard to believe that 2022 is coming close to an end. One of the big questions is, what will 2023 look like? Will the U.S. be entering into a recession? Will the Fed pivot? Or will they keep tightening or just pause? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Ryan Sweet. He's chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. Ryan, let's begin with what's coming up next week. The Fed will be meeting. The markets are anticipating that they're going to slow it down a bit with 50 basis points, which would take the Fed funds rate to about four and a half. And then they're pricing in a quarter point in January and a quarter point in March. What's your view? Will they keep on this path? Or do you think there's enough evidence pointing out that the economy is beginning to slow down and dip into a recession? You've got the PMIs coming out this week. It's expected the ISM will go below 50. What's your take here? I think the Fed's going to continue to raise interest rates, at least for the next two meetings. So our baseline forecast is not that far off from market expectations. We have 50 basis points at the upcoming December meeting, and then one more 25 basis point rate hike at the February meeting. Uh, it's January slash February. It goes into the February. But all in all, I think you know the Fed is getting partly what it wants. They want the economy to weaken. They want it to avoid a recession, but they need the economy to grow well below its potential to help reduce labor demand, put some downward pressure on nominal wage growth, and then by extension, hopefully help reduce inflation and put it on a solid path towards their 2% target. Reading the tea leaves, I think the Fed's going to err on the side of doing too much than too little. They know the economic costs of inflation are very, very high. And they are committed to getting inflation back down to their 2% target. I also think they're going to continue to raise interest rates because financial market conditions have eased recently. The stock market's had a few pretty good weeks here. That's the opposite of what the Fed wants. Monetary policy affects the economy through tighter financial market conditions. So if financial market conditions continue to ease, that may you know, put the Fed on a path towards even a higher interest rate terminal Fed funds rate than what we're anticipating in our baseline. So when all of this starts to add up, we start seeing, let's say, the unemployment rate starts to tick up and inflation is still up. I'm just thinking of what's going to happen in January, Ryan, where you have the cap on Russian oil. I was just reading a Bloomberg report. Uh, Putin is instructing his companies not to sell any oil to any company or country that is going along with these price caps. So the Fed can't control oil. What about the impact of energy, which the Fed can really do nothing about other than to kill demand? I think that's an excellent point. And I think this is the issue that the Federal Reserve is facing and other central banks. Monetary policy can affect the demand side of the economy. They can't affect the supply side. And more than half our inflation problems in the U.S. are attributed to supply shocks. You have Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which drove up energy prices. And it looks like energy prices could move a little bit higher in the near term. The Fed can't address that. The Fed can't address supply chain issues, which were roiled by the pandemic. And supply chain stress components of the consumer price index are adding roughly one and a half percentage point to year over year growth. So that's another supply side issue that the Fed can't address with raising interest rates. And then also, I would argue that rental inflation is also a supply shock. We just haven't built enough multifamily, single family homes. So rents in the US are rising very, very quickly. I think the good news, there's a lot of uncertainty around supply chains, whether you know they continue to improve a tremendous amount of uncertainty around 
where oil prices are headed in the near term. But there are indications that rents are going to roll over you know, sometime next year. And that will help beat disinflation and help pull some of the supply side inflation that we're experiencing lower in the near term. And we need that. We need a lot of goods disinflation to offset some of the services inflation that we're going to experience. But to your point, I think that's why the Fed's going to do too much, err on the side of doing too much and choking off demand more than most likely is necessary, just because they can't use interest rates to affect the supply side problems that are boosting inflation. Yeah, I was just reading a Bloomberg report and there's, I guess, a bit of dissonance within the Fed. Powell is in the minority on the committee, believing the Fed funds rate isn't clearly restrictive enough, where Lionel Brainerd is in the Dove camp, and there are more Fed governors going along with her. Do you think this puts pressure on him to maybe slow it down a little bit more or take a backseat, or do you think he's going to plow ahead? I think he's going to keep plowing ahead. And normally what you see is, you know, Fed governors, you know, and regional Fed presidents, you know, will make their views public between meetings and they can differ. You know, it's all up and down the spectrum. You can have dovish comments, you can have very hawkish comments. But at the end of the day, you know, Powell is going to make the decision and the Fed governors normally vote in line with what the chair opts to do. The last dissent by a Fed governor was in 2005. Now, regional Fed presidents, that's where most of the dissents come, you know, since 2005 have come all from regional Fed presidents. So for the most part, Powell walks into every meeting with the votes of the governors in his pocket. So if he wants to go 50 or 75 in December, that's what the Fed will do. So, you know, we're talking about supply chains and how that's added to the cost. The Wall Street Journal did a story this morning talking about when you think of supply chains, you think of manufactured goods. We don't think of food. But, you know, food prices globally are still 25% higher than where they were with before COVID-19 struck in 2020. So I live in California. So I walk in a supermarket, Ryan. I have every type of fruit and vegetable you can think of. We don't have seasons here because if we're not producing it in season here, it's probably in season someplace else around the world and we just ship it in. Mm -hmm. And exactly. I think supply chains are partly one reason why food prices are very elevated in the US. But a big input cost for food is the cost of getting it from farm to table or farm to grocery store, farm to restaurant. And that's transportation costs. So diesel prices had jumped because of higher global oil prices. They had started to come back down, but now diesel prices are stabilizing and inching it back up. And diesel prices affect food prices with a little bit of a lag. It takes two, three months before you start to see changes in diesel prices flow into food prices. But now the US consumer, you and I, we've seen some relief at the pump. Hopefully in the next couple of months, we should see some relief at the grocery store. It's going to be modest, just given that you still have some lingering supply chain issues. Russia's invasion of Ukraine really disrupted you know, wheat exports from Ukraine. So there's a lot of uncertainty around where food prices are headed in the near term. But And that's important because you know consumers, they base their inflation expectations. And this is what the Fed wants to keep well anchored is people's expectations of where inflation is headed you know, five years from now, 10 years from now. And they're really influenced by prices that they see on a regular basis. So gasoline prices and food prices. And even though gasoline prices came down, they're still up you know, well a lot year over year. Food prices have been rising very, very quickly. So you know that's a real burden, economic burden on U.S. consumers. And speaking of U.S. consumers, how do you see them handling all these price increases? Even though gas prices have come down, they're still higher than where they were a year ago. You've got food prices going up. You've got inflation going up that we've seen. 
And we're seeing right now just all kinds. I don't know what it's like where you're at, Ryan, but I mean, just about every retailer here has got all kinds of specials from Walmart to Target to everybody is running specials to get people in the store. And retailers are worried about overstocked inventory. They're trying to get people in. And part of the other reason they're discounting is that retail inventories were, I think, a little bit bloated ahead of the start of the holiday shopping season. But I've been pleasantly surprised by how well the U.S. consumer in aggregate has been handling high inflation. I think helping offset some of that is past increases in stock prices, past increases in U.S. house prices. Also, in aggregate, the U.S. consumer sitting still sitting on about $2 trillion in excess savings. And that's the additional savings that consumers have today, either in their mattress, in a checking account, you know, buried in their backyard, relative to pre-pandemic saving trends. And that's a lot of cash that's helping buffer the hit to consumer spending from elevated inflation. But when you look up and down the income distribution, and this is where I get concerned, is that low-income households have really worked through all their excess savings. And now it's their ability to spend is going to be determined based on the strength of the job market and nominal wage growth. And that's an area where the Fed wants job growth to slow, and they want wage growth to moderate to help bring down inflation. But again, looking in aggregate, you know, the U.S. consumer and household balance sheets are in very good shape. Debt service burdens are among the lowest they've been since the 1980s. So, so far, the U.S. household has been able to weather the high inflation, but that won't last forever. I don't think the pandemic has repealed the law of demand. So if prices keep going up, you're going to see demand quantity demanded for a number of goods and services start to come down. So as you look at this, in terms of odds, I've seen Bloomberg has almost 100% probability of recession. What is your take? What do you think the probabilities are that the Fed overdoes it and we do end up in a recession next year? I think the probabilities are uncomfortably high. I wouldn't go 100%. As an economist, you can never be 100% certain that an event's going to happen. But our baseline forecast is for the Fed to raise interest rates too aggressively and push the economy into a mild recession. And this recession will be mild because of the catalyst, which is most likely going to be a policy error, you know, past tightening of financial market conditions, a weakening in the housing market. And typically the catalyst determines the duration and the severity of an economic downturn. And there are no really glaring imbalances in the economy. We talked about the strength of household balance sheets, but non-financial corporate balance sheets are in good shape. State and local governments are flush with cash. Uh, so you don't see any real glaring problem in, in any part of the economy's balance sheet. And that should help mitigate the severity of the recession. And then you know the Fed is going to realize their aha moment where they realize that they raise interest rates too aggressively. You know Our forecast, we have them pausing after one rate hike next year and just keeping rates unchanged until early 2024 when they start cutting interest rates. And that should help lift the economy out of this mild recession. So we don't want to suffer from recency bias. And the next recession is not going to be anything like the two that we just experienced, the pandemic and the great financial crisis. Uh, Again, it goes back to the catalyst and the catalyst is just going to be a policy error. And historically, those have been associated with fairly mild recessions. I want to talk about something else that is also cropping up. I mean, it's hard to believe, Ryan, a little over a year ago, the government was paying 10 basis points on T-bills. Now they're over four, almost up to 5%. If you look at the one-year treasury bill, and uh, 10-year was under a half a percent. So all of this is going to start impacting government debt as it rolls over, unlike consumers who refinance their houses and locked in low mortgage rates, companies refinance their debt, locked in low corporate financing. But the government didn't do that. So they're talking, as we look at it, they're tracking at over $700 billion in interest. What impact do you think this is going to have 
And how long before members of Congress start screaming at the Fed? Well, it's hard to say when members of Congress are going to start screaming at the Fed. It seems like they're always screaming at the Fed. But what matters is what you brought up is interest payments. And if you look at interest payments, federal government interest payments as a share of nominal GDP, it's still fairly low. Now, our fiscal house, we need to get it in order, but this is not something that you address in 2023, 2024. Uh, You address this over time. And I think that's what the goal of fiscal policy should be. The last thing we need is for a sudden shift towards fiscal austerity, similar to what happened in 2010 through 2012. That took a lot of wind out of the economy sales during that expansion. And with the economy vulnerable, we don't need fiscal austerity to magnify the severity of the next economic downturn. I kind of want to ride this one out. Once the uh, next recovery kicks in, then that would be the time for lawmakers to really start addressing our fiscal house. So as you sum it up, you think we're going to head into a recession, but if we do, you think it'll be a mild one, nothing big like what we went through between, let's say, 2007 and 2009, or what we went through in the latter 70s. Correct. And again, the key thing is there's no real glaring imbalances. I mean, we can argue that the worst balance sheet is the federal government's, but that has less of a macroeconomic impact than you know, non-financial corporate balance sheets or if household balance sheets were really stretched and over-levered. We don't have that issue today. Uh, so this recession is going to be more of your garden variety downturn. You know, you'll see the unemployment rate rise by roughly a full percentage point, and it may be a peak to trough declining GDP of you know one and a half, two percent, which is still significant, but it's not you know the devastating recessions that we experienced in each of the last two. And what do you think the impact is going to be on the market? Like I said, the market is looking, as you mentioned, financial liquidity conditions have improved and the Fed doesn't want to see that. The markets are counting on that either the Fed's going to pause or maybe end up pivoting. But if you look at everything that's going on within the market, I can't help but think that as companies report fourth quarter earnings, it's going to start impacting those earnings per share numbers. I mean, if you look at the S&P, take out energy and it doesn't look that good. No, and I agree. And I think with inflation still elevated and nominal wage growth and thinking about unit labor costs, they're still rising at a fair clip. That's putting pressure on corporate profit margins. And that doesn't really bode well for earnings and the stock market going forward. So I think with the Fed continuing to raise interest rates, you know, what, what matters for the stock market is historically the Fed and the economy. So if you think about, you know, break those two down, you know, the Fed's going to continue to raise interest rates, which doesn't bode well for the stock market performance. And the economy is going to really start to weaken and most likely experience a recession sometime next year. That also doesn't bode well for the stock market. So I think, you know, we have a little bit more room to decline when it comes to U.S. equity prices. All right. Well, listen, Ryan, as we close, if our listeners would like to find out more about the work that you guys do at Oxford Economics, how could they do so? You can visit our website, OxfordEconomics, one word, .com. So we cover over 200 countries, 150 industrial sectors, and 8,000 cities and regions where we provide forecasts and analysis that give our clients the ability to make strategic decisions. So feel free to visit OxfordEconomics.com. All right. Well, listen, Ryan, happy holidays and a happy, prosperous new year. I hope to talk to you again. Same to you. Thank you, Jim. You betcha. Bye-bye. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Smart Macro. As always, we are joined by our Chief Investment Officer here at Financial Sense Wealth Management, Chris Paplava. 
So Chris, this week we spoke with Felix Suloff. I know that you and him are exchanging notes about the outlook. And on our podcast this week, he discussed how he believes that we're in the midst of a bear market rally, as many others have said on our show. But he thinks we're in the latter stages and that we are likely to see one more down leg into the first quarter before reaching some sort of sustainable bottom in the markets. What are your thoughts on what Felix Zuloff had to say in terms of weakness in the first quarter and where things could head as we enter into 2023? I do agree with Felix in general, you know, that this is essentially a bear market rally and that it will eventually end at some point and that we could possibly retest the lows or take out the October lows as we head into 2023. And the main reason that I believe that's the case is that the U.S. economy is continuing to slow. And the other thing is we're seeing the Federal Reserve continuing to raise interest rates. Now, you know, everyone's talking about a Fed pivot. Well, you know, the Fed slowing down its pace of rate hikes is not a pivot. But what we do see is the economy is slowing and we see the Fed continuing to raise interest rates, likely at a more moderate pace, even with a peak in inflation. Now, Typically, once you see a peak in inflation, the Fed starts to take it easy with either a pause or possibly cutting rates, particularly if the economy is weakening. But uh, this is truly almost unprecedented, Chris, where we have a peak in inflation, a peak in economic growth rates. The economy is clearly slowing, where the conference board basically believes that we will be in a recession by the end of this year. And yet the Fed is still raising interest rates. Now, the one thing I want to comment that has been left out of the Fed press conferences and in, in general, financial market commentary is everyone is fixated on interest rates and the Fed's interest rate program. But no one is really talking about the other side of what the Fed is doing, which is quantitative tightening in, in terms of shrinking its balance sheet uh, nearly, nearly $100 billion a month. So we're talking, Chris, if the Fed does not change and does not pivot on the quantitative tightening side, will have shrunk its balance sheet 12 months from now by nearly $1.2 trillion. That's a massive amount of liquidity leaving. At the same time, the U.S. economy probably is or will find itself in a recession next year. Now, I, I know you've spoken with the head economist at Bloomberg who thinks the timetable for that will be by the third quarter of next year, near 100% certainty. But the point being that even if the Fed slows down its pace of rate hikes, number one, the Fed is not done raising interest rates, okay? Second, the Fed is continuing to shrink its balance sheet. Now, focusing on the balance sheet, what's really important, Chris, you and I have kind of uh, talked about this in previous podcasts as well as in client newsletters, is when we think of the Fed and its balance sheet, you know, a balance sheet has really two sides of the equation, you know, just like any business on general accounting terms. So I'll, I'll try to uh, make this as simple as possible. And when it comes to general accounting, you you have your assets and you have your liabilities. And the same thing with consumers' balance sheets, right? You have your assets, um, your investment account, your IRA, and then you have your liabilities like your mortgage and other areas. Well, to basically to balance out your balance sheet, your assets have to equal your liabilities. And so when the Fed is selling or shrinking its balance sheet, what it's really doing is, is shrinking its assets. And it's doing roughly $60 billion a month in treasuries and roughly 30, a little over $30 billion a month in mortgages. So the Fed is shrinking its asset side. Well, the question is, what is falling on the liability side? Because that's equally important to know, you know how that match is being made. 
And what we've seen, Chris, for the bulk of this year is that as the Fed has been shrinking its assets, the main brunt of that on the liability side has been excess reserves or bank reserves held at Federal Reserve banks. So as bank reserves have fallen, we've generally seen falling stock markets. And in the months and periods where we've seen bank reserves stabilize or even rise, that's generally led to a rally in the stock market. So it's really important to keep an eye on what bank reserves are doing. Now, what we have seen, which is kind of a change in trend, Chris, is since October, what we've seen is that the the brunt of the decline on the asset side has been met with the decline in reverse repos. And that's a liability at the Fed where people park money at the reverse repo facility and the Fed pays an overnight interest rate on those deposits. And with reverse repos falling roughly about $300 billion since the October peak, that has allowed basically bank reserves uh, a breather of not declining, and we've seen the market rally since then. Now, what led to a huge surge in reverse repos and why money market centers were lending to the Fed instead of lending to the U.S. Treasury was because we had this massive debt issuance in 2020 in response to COVID. And because of that massive amount, more than what we actually spent, the Treasury essentially had excess cash at the Federal Reserve that it spent through last year and into this year before it really needed to issue a lot of significantly higher amounts of debt. And with a lack of uh, Treasury issuance by the Treasury, money market centers were essentially kind of left grappling with, okay, well, where do we park our funds? And they turned to the Fed. And so we saw the reverse repo facility really be tapped last year and this year. And so it's really important to kind of keep an eye on, on, on those trends. Now, the reason why it's important is we really have not seen the sting of the Fed's quantitative tightening program over the last couple of months here because bank reserves more or less been flat. So this is something we need to keep an eye on. And it could, if we see this trend continue, it could allow the market to rally a little bit further than some are anticipating, possibly, you know, through December, maybe even into January. So that may catch a few people off guard as to the strength of this rally. And it may even turn uh, some animal spirits higher, where some people may call for the end of the bear market. But I think... Honestly, Chris, this is a sucker's rally because, again, monetary policy is still incredibly tight and we're not likely to see inflation fall to the Fed's 2% target rate anytime soon. And with the economy faltering here, as I anticipate, um, I, I do think this is going to be and still is a bear market rally. Okay, so it sounds like there's two different time frames that we're looking at where there are certain influences exerting an impact on the market outlook. On the short term, we have what you described with bank reserves and some of the technicalities here that gets a little bit wonky for some people. But in the short term, that this could actually lift the bear market rally that we're currently seeing a bit higher than what many may assume we would see. Uh, On the long term, however, we're still seeing the economy slowing. It's likely to continue doing so in 2023 with a lot of the recession probability models showing very high odds of recession. No big turn on leading economic indicators or anything along those lines. The Fed is still raising rates. Granted, they are going to be downshifting from 75 basis points as they did in their last meeting to very likely 50 basis points in their next meeting this month. But they're still raising and we still have quantitative tightening 
by them selling treasuries and also with mortgage-backed securities, which is putting upward pressure both on interest rates and mortgage rates. So those three things all combined are still putting longer-term pressure on the stock market as we look further out into 2023. But in the short term, this bear market rally, again, could move a bit higher than what perhaps many are anticipating. So it sounds like given that, if you are a shorter term trader, more tactical, then there might be an opportunity here as we see this year end rally commence, perhaps even that could carry through into the new year. But if you're a longer term investor maintaining a defensive posture, that is still how we're playing this market at this point. That's correct, Chris. From our vantage point, when you look at bear markets, you know, bear markets can have prolonged and pretty significant rallies over the course of time that really confuse people to think that a new bull market is in. And I think that's what we have on our hands right now. There's just too many things, Chris, that are, are not improving. They're not on the right side of the you know investment ledger, so to speak. It's really important to understand that the Fed is still doing quantitative tightening. There is no hint whatsoever of a pivot at all in terms of the Fed shrinking its balance sheet. Now, this is hugely important because when we look at the U.S. Treasury, over the last 12 months, on a trailing 12-month basis, the Treasury issued $1.47 trillion in new debt, which is massive. I mean, outside of the, the COVID downturn, the last time the U.S. issued that much debt was back in 2009 when the unemployment rate was north of 10%, not the current 3.7 that we have now. So, you know, the U.S. Treasury has been issuing high rates of debt ever since 2020. And the reason why that wasn't really a problem until this year was because most of the purchases were being made by the Federal Reserve. Now, the Federal Reserve is not doing that. And instead, the Fed is shrinking its holdings of treasuries. So, you know, this is a problem for the markets where the U.S. Treasury is still issuing massive amounts. We have U.S. commercial banks who are shrinking their treasury holdings as well as foreign banks. And so when we look at the, you know, what lies ahead, there's a lot to be worried about. You know, for example, the Treasury, you know, issues a quarterly estimate for its borrowing needs for the present and next quarter. And back in August, they estimated they would issue $400 billion in debt in the fourth quarter. And on Halloween, they raised that estimate to $550 billion for this quarter. That's a 37.5% increase above what they initially were estimating. And for the first quarter of next year, they're basically looking at spending $778 billion in the first quarter. So when you look at the fourth quarter and the first quarter of next year, we're looking at about $1.33 trillion in spending and debt issuance by the U.S. Treasury. Now, you annualize that, Chris, we're talking $2.66 trillion on an annual basis. This is occurring when the Fed is shrinking its holdings of treasuries. Foreigners are shrinking their holdings of treasuries, as are commercial banks. Now, what happens, Chris, when we have a faltering economy? The Treasury will issue even higher amounts of debt because tax revenues decline during recessions and spending picks up for unemployment insurance claims. So I think we have a massive potential amount of supply of debt coming. And so I know that interest rates have fallen recently, but I think there's a good chance that the, the downside here is fairly limited 
And there could even be an occurrence where interest rates rise, basically where there's just not enough demand to absorb all of this issuance. So, you know, this will be very important heading into 2023 for investors to bear in mind and not just get fixated on interest rates, but to pay attention to what the Fed's doing with its balance sheet. So again, on a tactical, more shorter term basis, there may be an opportunity with this bear market rally persisting into the new year. However, on a longer term strategic basis, you know, still on the defensive side, as we've been discussing since late 2021. So Chris, thanks again for coming on and giving an update on your outlook. I do want to tell any of you listening that if you do want to see some of these market relationships in a visual form, Chris Papalava produces a regular video presentation that we post on our website in YouTube, where you can see a lot of these relationships and how they relate to the broader market outlook. Chris, on that note, would you mind telling our listeners about some of the services that we provide here at Financial Sense Wealth Management? Sure. We provide a whole host of financial services. We provide financial planning, wealth management. We also do 401k servicing, consulting, and we also assist corporations in managing their cash balance, particularly with interest rates at 0%. If any of our listeners would like to get in touch with our financial advisors, what would be the best way to do so? They can give us a call at 888 486 3939. Chris, it was a pleasure speaking with you again on Smart Macro. We look forward to speaking with you in another two weeks. Well, that concludes this week's edition of Financial Sense News Hour and our Smart Macro segment with Chris Paplava. To speak with any of our financial advisors, you can do so by giving us a call at 888-486-3939. We do have a weekday premium program as well called FS Insider. If you're not already a subscriber and you would like to listen to more of our podcast during the week and can also be accessed on our website or through a podcast app of your choice on a mobile device. If you're not already a subscriber, just go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk